This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio, the gold standard of automotive service aftermarket podcast. We've been the best grounded resource for automotive service repair business acumen for the independent shop since 2015. I haven't gotten any older in between that time. I'll tell you that for sure. We have a very, very interesting show. We're calling it counterfeit parts, but there's a lot more we're going to cover. Let me introduce my great panel to you. Tanner Brandt, Auto Diag Clinic. Hello, mobile diagnostician and trainer. Hello, Tanner. Hey, guys. And uh, thank you for bringing us this topic, Tanner. Bob Stewart's with us, Global Brand Protection Manager for General Motors. You ever hear of General Motors, everyone? Hey, everyone. Hey, Bob. Glad to have you here from GM. And Stephen Contos. Did I say that right, Stephen? Yeah. Contos, patent attorney, counsel specializing in automotive engineering and software for Herity and Herity LLP. And somehow I didn't get the memo that that we weren't supposed to wear ties today, guys. So I'm sorry I overdressed. What a darn shame. Hey, we want to obviously pay great homage to our great sponsors here on the Town Hall Academy. You know, priorities change in a heartbeat. So shouldn't your shop management system reflect that? If you use shopware, it does. The built-in expediter lets you shuffle jobs around based in real time for maximum efficiency. On the web, talk to my friends at GetShopware.com. And when you turn to Delphi Technologies for your chassis needs, quality is always forefront, material and dimensional enhancements, as well as 700 hours worth of salt spray testing, it goes into each and every chassis part produced. Visit my friends at DelphiAftermarket.com to see over 8,000 chassis parts Delphi has in stock. And I know we got an episode coming up with Dave Hobbs. Did that release, Trace? I, I don't remember. But yeah, I think it did. A great, great episode with Dave. Of course, Dave is just, he's into everything you could possibly imagine, right, Tanner? Agreed. <laughs> well, look, at, a lot to talk about today. I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea of why you should hang around. We're going to talk about stolen, maybe cracked software, security risks from downloading Legal risks for having possession of both for technicians and shop owners, implications that large companies could face by selling counterfeit parts and branding logos. This is an interesting topic on the branding logos. So let me open it up to you, Tanner. Let's get this thing started. Thank you so much for wanting to passionately get this thing discussed. Of course. Thanks for having me and letting me talk about it. So this topic kind of came up at a NASDAQ meeting, I guess, at Vision, I would say. And then since 2020, obviously, we know parts has been a problem. So there's going to be two parts to the episode. I'm going to talk about counterfeit parts, which I know people have been having an issue with kind of since supply chain shortages. And then also stolen, cracked, or illegitimate software. I'll refer to it as this would be like OEM software that you're not actually purchasing through General Motors or somebody else. Maybe you're getting it through a third-party channel for significantly less money and maybe only part of it works or something like that. So there's a lot of problems, I guess I would say, with the software as well as parts. I had a shop that had some counterfeit parts and went round and round and round, uh, took the truck apart three different times because of parts that were counterfeit and not correct and ended up causing them. It was about a $3,000 bill all said and done. So lots of problems caused by both. So I thought it was a good topic to talk about. Bob, are you all in on this topic? I mean, what's GM doing all about this? Definitely. I do have to put a disclaimer out there that, you know, 
these are my opinions as Bob Stewart. I do work for GM, but uh, they may differ from the corporate opinions. But yeah, we're all in. We spend a lot of time looking for counterfeit parts. We average somewhere about three to four requests a week from uh, independent shops, primarily here in the U.S., asking questions about parts. Tanner's actually reached out to me with questions on parts that are counterfeit. And the counterfeiters are getting so good. It, a lot of times it takes the actual manufacturer, the engineer that designs them to look at them, to be able to determine them. So from a technician standpoint, that's really difficult to know whether you got a counterfeit part or a, a genuine part. Hey, Bob, I got a question about reverse engineering. Am I right in my thinking that someone would want to take this part, find out everything about it and say, hey, I think we can make that. Is that part of counterfeiting or is that just brilliance? That's the unique part about the automotive parts industry. There's a difference between aftermarket parts and counterfeit parts. Aftermarket parts are perfectly fine as long as they don't infringe on design patents or patents or things like that. But aftermarket parts are perfectly fine as long as they're not trying to pass them off as the OE. That's where they cross the line is where they're trying to pass them off as like our AC Delco branded aftermarket saying that theirs is an AC Delco also. So if I was looking for a Michael Coors purse and I was in New York (laughs) and I saw a street vendor there (laughs) and the Michael Coors logo was on the side of the purse and they said, this is genuine but it's only $49. There's kind of be a warning there, right? Definitely. The red flags are flying on that one. Usually what we say is if the price is too good to be true, it probably is. That's usually the first indicator. So it's buyer beware, right guys? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I want to point out, what they're kind of talking about is, so say you need a, I'm going to use the knock sensor example, even though we don't know for a hundred percent on this one, but you're looking for a part and you're going, okay, I prefer a dealer part. And maybe you call a GM dealer and the GM dealer doesn't have it. So you start looking online and you find a part that says GM original equipment and it comes in a GM original equipment bag and everything on it has the stickers, but you open it and maybe either the part is bad or it doesn't quite look right. That's what a counterfeit would be. So we're not talking about buying from a aftermarket supplier or something like that. We're talking about trying to buy something with a GM logo or Ford logo or whoever's logo, but the part is not actually from them. And this has become a big problem since I would say 2020 is really when it started since COVID that these parts started popping up a lot of times through online resellers and things like that. Uh, One of the ones in particular that I have seen was a NGK spark plug. And this was something that came up and was posted that people had gotten NGK counterfeit plugs through an online supplier and then they were aware of it. So it was kind of interesting. You know, that was a just one that I guess was kind of what I want to say became went through Facebook, I guess, and was common knowledge. So that's what we're talking about as far as counterfeit parts. As an attorney, tell me about your angle on this, Steve, and have companies come to you and says, hey, I got to send this to you in the mail. There's something wrong here. Yeah, I'm based in Metro Detroit. So I see a lot of automotive work in general. But the two ways that this tends to come up, like where we see counterfeit automotive parts is issues with a factory typically overseas, opening up a third shift and just cranking out parts and then selling them outside of their arrangement with the OEM or tier one or whoever in the United States that designed and is paying for the part. And then the other side that we see is something called gray market goods. So let's say you have a part for your listeners who may not be familiar. We're probably familiar with black market. Black market means it's just being sold illegally. Gray market means it's a part that's being purchased legally Usually like with some sort of geographic limitation, like, you know, you may have software license in Canada, but not the U.S. So maybe it's cheaper in Canada. So it's purchased there, but then used in a way that's outside the scope of an allowable use. 
This comes up in fashion a lot too, like trademark law is full of uh, fashion examples. So you mentioned Michael Kors. If you have a Michael Kors product that's licensed in like Italy, I don't know where they sell. I'm not a fashion person, clearly. If you have a Michael Kors product that's licensed in Italy, someone goes there, buys a ton and sells them in the United States. That's a gray market good. It's a trademark infringement, even though it's legitimately Michael Kors. So there's a couple of different nuances of how like counterfeit goods come up. One, like I said, is illegally making the product, sometimes in the very factory where the legitimate ones are made. Another common one is like the gray market where it's purchased legally somewhere, but then used in an illegal way. Okay, I got to jump into this OES, OEM thing, Bob, because the OES are the suppliers that make the parts for you guys, right? Correct. Original equipment suppliers. I'm not even sure. Do I have the acronym right? That's the way I understand it. <laughs> yeah. So does that OE supplier get from you a license to literally make that and then sell that to other major brands? There are all different types of supply agreements and every one of them is going to be treated different. Some of them have contracts where it's exclusively manufactured for us. A lot of it depends on who does the engineering. If we rely on them to engineer it from specs that we create or we create the engineering documents, there's every level of that. But the majority of them are set to be sourced directly to the OEM. But there are many, many OES suppliers that also have an aftermarket brand and sell similar products in the market. Tanner, how as a technician, individual that works on cars, you need parts to make them work? You get something, I mean, can you tell what's gray, what's black? Not all the time. And that's what I would say. What's kind of interesting is the part that you get may not be good. And like the knock sensor example that we had, it was three sets of knock sensors from a parts house that were supposed to be originally equipment and came in a bag with the manufacturer's logo on it. And after three sets, they were still bad. And then we get a set from the dealer, comes in the same bag, looks the same, but the knock sensor itself is different because it doesn't have a sticker on it that these other ones did. So at that point, we kind of assumed that they may be counterfeit and the fact that they didn't work. So it was kind of an interesting, it's difficult to tell. It's interesting to like think through that. Do I have one? And I think one of the things I was curious about why I wanted to bring this up too was from a standpoint of a large supplier. So we're talking a parts house or something. If it's brought to a parts house's attention that maybe they have a, somehow they've ended up with counterfeit goods. Once it's brought to their attention and they continue selling those goods, is it a legal problem for them to continue to do so? I mean, obviously, I don't think any of them purposely buy counterfeit goods, but if they all of a sudden go, okay, we got 10,000, whatever, and a shop gets it, sends it to Bob. Bob says, yep, this is definitely counterfeit. The parts house is made aware of it, but doesn't do anything about it and continues selling them. Does that then have a legal implication to them? Something that surprises a lot of people is that you are liable. It's a strict liability tort. Strict liability just means that you don't need to know that you're infringing to be liable for infringement. So if you're buying parts that you think are legitimate, like it certainly helps you if those are your facts. Like the judge will be sympathetic, the jury will be sympathetic, but theoretically you are still liable, especially on the patent side. You're liable for patent infringement. You know, patents protect inventions. So think of things, sometimes software like tangible things, software is usually covered by patents. You're liable for patent infringement if you make, use, sell, offer to sell, or import a patented product. So if you have a listing up on your website for a product that you believe is legitimate, but it's actually committing some sort of patent infringement or it's counterfeit or whatever, you could still be liable as an infringer. There's a lot of nuance that goes into that. 
like the damages model can get weird if you didn't know. So there's a lot more to it than just that. But it is something that needs to be investigated really before anybody sells any product ever. They need to kind of clear it for patent issues at least. I don't know about you guys, but the last five minutes seems pretty damn heavy. I'm at this point, Tanner, where when I go back to those knock sensors that didn't do the job and then the dealer part did, were they just a manufactured defect or were they legitimately uh, knockoffs? Counterfeit. That's a good question. And that one, we didn't have a like, definite answer on right now, but it was three. So there's two knock sensors in the vehicle and it was three complete sets of two from the same supplier in the same bags that didn't work. And then the dealer ones came in in essentially the same bag and did work. So my personal opinion, I don't think they were real or legitimate, I guess I would say. And knowing like that specific sensor we've had issues with the smaller sensors it seems to be more likely to be counterfeit i guess i would say probably because there's less technology there but like i don't see so yeah, i was assuming that those ones are i guess or i'm making an assumption that they were because of what we ran into and it was again that was a oe bagged sensor it wasn't an aftermarket sensor it was a oem sensor bought through a parts house i guess would be the explanation Hey, aren't you tired of being tired after a crazy day at the shop? Take the frustration out of your work by speeding up the processes that bog you down. Start a repair order based on a canned job. Check. Order parts from a menu that includes every supplier within seconds. Check. Now send all that information with photos or videos to a customer via a live chat on their phone. What? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Check that box. Get an approval faster than ever so you don't tie up a bay for hours. Check. Hey, it gets even better. Once they see the summary of work they need, next time they ask you to fix one or two more items today. Boom, that bill goes up and you make more. Then, get this, they pay you on their phone before they even pick up their car. This could be your life, my friend. Talk to my friends at GetShopware.com. As the trusted aftermarket brand for over 100 years, Delphi Technologies is by your side for every step of the repair process. The Delphi journey doesn't stop once the parts are ordered. Wherever your journey takes you, our quality parts gives you ease of mind when getting your customer's vehicle back on the road. Technicians know and trust Delphi as a quality brand. Each product undergoes rigorous testing to not only meet OE standards, but also enhance it in each opportunity. From 700 hours of spray testing on chassis components to fuel pumps tested for reliability up to 150,000 miles. And safety and reliability is paramount to help vehicles drive cleaner, better, and further throughout their lives. Delphi is also committed in developing products and services to prepare technicians for the future. Take advantage of how-to videos on YouTube, technician-led trainings, and our technical support line, and more. Turn to the aftermarket parts supplier with over 100 years of OEM trust and quality. Learn more about Delphi. Visit DelphiAftermarket.com. From a supplier's perspective, is anyone telling them, we think these aren't legit? But if you're going and supporting a very strong family or national level supplier, you would think think that there's just no way they're going to let this creep into their supply chain, okay? But if you're buying in some, if you will, <laughs> greatparts.com, <laughs> uh, sorry, that was funny. If you're buying from there, then you're taking the chance. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Bob, I'm sure can tell us, obviously we can't name names, but 
you know the where counterfeit parts have come from. Have you seen counterfeit parts come from what you would consider a legitimate supplier, parts house or online company so far? I haven't. They all come from one region of the world, which I think everybody knows where they come from, but they do filter in. And, you know, I've been doing this for, I was trying to think earlier today, about 15 years I've been doing brand protection at GM. And I can only think of a handful of cases where one legitimate supplier of ours or distributor of ours has ended up with counterfeit parts in their inventory. And the last example was through an acquisition. They bought a jobber store and just took on that inventory. And within that inventory happened to be some counterfeit spark plugs. So we take it really serious here. We had them send all of their spark plugs from that facility back to us. And we sent them on to the supplier and had all of them reviewed. The interesting thing was, is that set that was bought that was counterfeit happened to be the only set in there. And, I, you know, one of the questions Tanner asked me prior to this was, you know, what's the risk? For these suppliers are these distributors out there. And one of the risks is somebody buys these parts on a gray market website, you know, graymarketparts.com or, you know, counterfeitparts.com, and they return them to one of the distributors. And the distributor doesn't know any different because they look, pass off to most people as the genuine product. Did you hear what he said? 15 years under brand protection. It'd be like, you know, at the campfire and hearing all these crazy stories that you would never imagine or believe what happens. Amazing. We can't solve this problem, but we can bring awareness, which is exactly what it is that we're doing. Tanner, we're talking about software too. Can we get some bad software? Yeah. So software is kind of an interesting thing. There's aftermarket scan tool software, then there's OE software. And OE software, I'm talking, we'll use GM as an example, TechLine Connect, SPS2, GDS2. That's the OEM software. And the OEM software is available to the aftermarket. Some people that are listening still may not know that. So you can purchase, you can be in the aftermarket and purchase OEM software directly through the OEM. So that's fine. But what happens sometimes is people go and will find through gray market websites, black market websites, that they can purchase software that is maybe an offline version, it's called, or it's you're purchasing it. Some person via Skype is logging into your computer and downloading the software onto your computer and you're using cracked software that, or maybe it's a engineering level software that you're able to get because you can't do a used module, but you've heard that X engineering software can do it and the engineering software isn't available to the public. And then you're downloading that from some company, some guy through Skype or something like that. So that's how you can end up with illegitimate or cracked or stolen software. And there's definitely, I'm sure there's legal implications <laughs> for it. We'll talk to Steve about that. And then there's also a security risk. Bob brought up something to me that I thought was really interesting. So let Bob talk about one of the security risks that they found. Yeah, so there's both safety and security. You know, if you're getting, as Tanner said, an offline version of software, one of our challenges as an OEM is to make sure that the latest version of software is put in the vehicle when the technician repairs it, because there may be flaws in that previous software that were identified. So we need to make sure that the, the appropriate version's in there. But the one thing that I struggle with and where Tanner was going with this is uh, we have an incident right now we've been working on for a few months here. Those same guys that make those pirate versions, they're also embedding malware with inside that software. So when you load it on your PC, it now is compromising your credentials, could be any of the credentials that you have on that computer, and they're shipping it over to their server. So what they're doing is they're setting up a proxy server. So everything off of your computer routes through their server and it's capturing all your credentials off your PC and they can use those for whatever they would like to use them. So thing to keep in mind there is the people typically that do this, and I'm not talking about the people that get the software. I understand that. Everybody's trying to get ahead in life. So 
that's understandable. But the bad guys that, that crack the software and things like that, they're bad guys for a reason. And they're always looking for a way to get an edge on something. So they're skimming credentials. They're taking information off your network, off your PC and sending it, whatever they can do with it. That's why there's a whole dark web out there of selling credit card numbers and credentials to different things. They're using it for that also because they're the same people. We talked about the counterfeit parts being in China. I see a lot of traffic in Nigeria and Ghana. I think everybody's really familiar with what the Nigerians do in the financial schemes. So these are the places that some of that information is being sent when the software is installed. And one of the things I've been kind of saving this one and keeping it in the back of my head for this podcast, and I didn't bring it up to anybody. I didn't tell Bob this one yet too, but there's going to be a lot of people scratching their head here. So imagine that one of these PCs, somebody in your that works for your organization. So I'm talking, let's say like a big multi-shop organization. And one of your technicians has downloaded this software on a laptop and it's now looking through your network and they get your credentials, they get a password. Now all of a sudden they can see your customer data. They have your customer's address and they have your customer's VIN number and your make model of a car. So stealing cars throughout the U.S. has become a bigger thing. We suddenly in my area in the past three months have had a big issue with, uh, I haven't reached out to anybody yet about it because they're probably going to go, oh, why does this guy know everything about it? But there are certain cars that are stolen more than others. At ETI a couple of years ago, I spoke up kind of, I guess, without anybody knowing who I was. And they had a picture on the screen of these are the most stolen cars. And they're like, yeah, they're really sought after. And I spoke up in a room full of like 1,500 people and said, no, they're not sought after. They're vehicles that are very easy to steal with certain tools. And they take literally under 30 seconds to steal the vehicle. So if they have your customer's VIN number and they have the address, they have the ability to go, okay, this is a car that's easy to steal and this customer has it. And when they have a group of people that's working, let's say they're working Detroit this month or they're working Chicago this month. And I bring it up because these cells seem to move from state to state in different areas. And we know from law enforcement that it's like more or less the same groups of people. They could essentially skim your customer database and say, these are the cars that are easy to steal. These are the addresses where they're at. And they have the VIN number. Now they don't need the VIN number to steal the car, but they at least now have the address of the vehicle and know what kind of vehicle they have and can make a decision and go, yep, this customer in this area, Metro, Detroit, whatever, Denver, Colorado, wherever they are, they can make a list of cars that are easy to steal off of your customer database. And essentially, they realistically could, hopefully not, but could end up with key codes via a VIN number. Now, obviously, many OEMs try to prevent that, but if they hack a OEM, they could end up with key codes, VIN number, and realistically cut a key and go right to the vehicle and then program the key. If it's a push-button vehicle, it's even easier. So there's that big security risk that comes with this that needs to be thought about as well. So one thing to keep in mind is that like there's the intellectual property infringement side, then there's also the business side of things. And so even if a company like a tier one supplier wasn't going to find themselves liable for some sort of IP infringement, they certainly don't want to be on an OEM's bad side for letting this backdoor security issue into a car. But um, a couple places where I've seen security come up a lot is with vehicle, like there's all this talk about you know, cars are just giant computers now that move. And like they've got to be able to trust the data that they're getting. And there's more and more ways for the wrong data to be injected into, into the car. And if the car trusts it, you could have major, major problems. The other thing is with like DSRC, Bluetooth, low energy, oh, like 5G, just the way that cars are starting to talk to each other. Like there's vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, just all this additional communication that the car needs to make sense of now 
it creates enormous opportunities for fraudulent data to make its way in and to tell cars that things are happening that aren't happening. And then you add one more layer on top of that autonomous vehicles. You know, you've got theoretically somebody who could control vehicles, like a fleet of vehicles, like all going down a freeway. So it's, I think the safety issue, maybe not just safety, but security issue is massive. And I'd be shocked if OEMs weren't paying a ton of attention to it. I don't see that a whole lot directly, but it's pretty clear from the type of technology I work on that those risks are there and they're, they're being addressed by the OEMs and the tier ones. Don't let the OE get upset at you. And I was really moved by that. So how does the OE get upset at me? Because I didn't have security, a firewall. I failed in some step of the way. And it was because I put that counterfeit part on, malware, boom, and in. So I'm flurred about this. And the, the next thing that I can think of, Tanner, Steve, and Bob, is we need licensing and we need vetting. I mean, it goes back to my the whole thing with NASDAQ on making sure that, you know, who can do keys. Are we at that particular point where if this is a legitimate part, it needs to be the person who's touching it and hooking up to it has to be vetted to make this thing turn on? Am I off the charts here or am I, am I going somewhere smart? I think you're on to something, Carm. I know there's a lot of OEs talking about that. I know we've taken a slightly different approach to that. We focused on hardening the vehicle so that it doesn't really matter who does it, who's performing the repair on it, that they can't damage the vehicle or put the vehicle owner in harm's way. But I do know that there's a trend in the industry to start verifying the technician that's actually performing the work and knowing who's doing that. And for other reasons, too, as you mentioned, NASTEF, you know, there's some issues with technicians being targets by criminals for the tools that they own. And that's part of what's driving that authentication with that tool. So that tool can be rendered useless, which if it's stolen is less of a target, hopefully for the technician or locksmith. And one of the things I want to bring up is remote programming. Cause Bob was just talking about hardening the vehicle. So some of the companies haven't taken that approach and have just basically said, well, we'll use a credentialed person or we'll use if the shop doesn't have the ability, then somebody with the ability can remote into it. As of recently, with different remote programming options out there, you may have somebody, you may have an individual doing the remote programming for you that is using not correct software. So if the vehicle is not manufactured in such a way that it's safe, so I guess I'll use an example of this. Let's say you have a vehicle that's a salvage title. This is something a lot of OEMs kind of take a hard stance on and say, we don't want this vehicle to be programmed, but you submit a re request for a remote programming event. And you may or may not know the person that's doing the remote programming and it's an airbag module. And I'll use a Chevy Suburban, for example. If it has airbags for the front and back seats, but it's a salvage title and they don't want to repair the airbags in the back, and there's a communication line going back and forth with the expert, you could technically program the vehicle as a two-door truck and it would exclude the rear airbags. And at this point, the vehicle's programmed incorrectly. And because you're possibly using a remote service that maybe somebody is using illegitimate tools, you don't know that that's gone on. With a factory tool, maybe that's not possible and you don't have to worry about it. But if you don't know the software that the person is using, remotely, you can end up with problems like that, or they're using an engineering tool remotely via OBD, and now things can be changed or programmed incorrectly, and you're giving a car back to a customer that 
may or may not be safe, but you feel that you've done everything correctly and you're assuming that the vehicle manufacturer has taken the stance like GM and said, we're going to try to make our vehicle safe, but they can't account for somebody using software that is doing something it's not supposed to or that wasn't supposed to be available to the public to begin with. So there's that problem too. And I guess one of the things that I was curious about with this, this will be for you, Steve, is If there's a company that is, let's say they're using a remote programming service and they're doing hundreds of remote programming events, if the software being used to program the vehicle were illegal, is just the person performing the programming liable or does the large company that's having the programming done also become liable? Gosh, it gets tricky fast. So one thing you'd have to look at is like, who's going to complain about it and who are they willing to sue over the issue. And so like we see this in patent law all the time, like the way patents are often written, like you want to target a patent. So patents don't always cover software. Software is sometimes patents, but almost always copyright. So it's a different body of law. But when you write a patent, you focus it on your competitors. Like you don't want to sue your customers for infringing your patent, even though technically they probably are, but you you just don't sue them. You sue competitors and manufacturers. And so I think in in like your hypothetical, you'd want to think about, well, who's going to do the complaining? And like, they're not going to want to sue like up the chain in case they're going to disrupt their business relationships. People tend to sue laterally. So like the tier ones are going to sue each other. The OEMs are going to sue each other. Sometimes you'll see OEMs sue like a tier one, but that's less common. Right. So I guess like one of the things I'm thinking about with this is so a remote programming event is performed, the car gets in an accident, something doesn't perform, whether that be ADOS or airbag or something like that. They go back, realize that the software that programmed this car was illegitimate and was programmed incorrectly. Obviously, you go back to first the company that did the remote programming, but now the company is using individuals or could be using individuals. So then you go back to that individual. Well, if it's just a one person show, but that one person, the car was fixed X big collision center, and they're using remote programming for all of their programming. And you realize that that same person programmed 6,000 cars for them over three years, but it's just a singular individual. There's nobody really to sue there. So then do you go, does it end up that A, the person that was hurt in the accident or whatever goes after the collision center, but then you also realize that the illegitimate software has been being used for years to make money. So I guess, Bob, too, this would be one of like (laughs) somebody's in violation, I guess, of like a EULA agreement or they're using, as we found out, engineering software. One individual is using engineering software through a remote platform. So now all of a sudden they have the ability to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars versus one programming. One programming, it's not really a big deal. GM's going to look the other way. But If they're using that software to do thousands of programmings for a large company, does that then become a legal risk? I think in general, I mean, Bob may have his own answer, but in general, if the person that is liable is not a deep pocket or a deep enough pocket, like certainly GM or any of the automotive OEMs have the means to crush individuals in a courtroom. They're not always going to take the time to do it. It had to be pretty egregious, I think, for them to make that. At that point, it's a business decision. Do we just want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a million dollars, like on something that we'll never recover? And but I do think it touches a lot on warranties. So that's where, like you mentioned, the big collision shop that may have contracted this individual. You know, there's got to be some warranty there. And so I, I think that they would probably pursue it as a warranty claim, as a, as opposed to like an intellectual property dispute, which and warranties are outside my <laughs> my area. But that's how I would see that going. It'd be pretty unusual for a big company to sue an individual for some sort of IP infringement at that level. 
You know, guys, there was the John Eagle case that was so big, so prominent. It's like when a, they turn Tesla into full autonomy and something happens and it's all over the news like John Eagle was. All this stuff is important. And some people are taking shortcuts and not doing it, if you will, legit. And yet nothing has ever happened to the point where there's legislation or pressure to get it right. And so it seems like every day is a... <laughs> bless me, father, shortcut next day kind of thing as we continue to dive deeper into things we're talking about here that don't seem to be 100%. One area, like especially in IP law, like the tide can turn pretty quickly. Like so a couple of years ago, we saw some automotive companies using design patents to go after some aftermarket product companies which was kind of an unusual strategy at the time. And I think they had like moderate success. So it really, a lot of times it just comes down to how annoyed is the legal department and like how much pressure are they getting and how badly do they want to go after an aftermarket company? I mean, it's a little easier, I think, between the OEMs and the tier ones. But when you're talking about an aftermarket company, which doesn't have quite the same kind of legal relationship with an OEM, there's certainly a line that you can cross where that's going to get their attention that they're going to be mad about. And that line is often has a dollar value associated with it. And then you've got like the OEMs certainly rely on dealers. They rely on like smaller shops to do a lot of the work that they just can't handle. So there is like the symbiotic relationship. And I guess everyone just doesn't want to disrupt that. And they just need to be really careful about everything they're doing to make sure that they're not going to push too far in either direction to get on anyone's bad side. I know it's like not the lawyer answer, but it is the real answer. (laughs) It was a typical lawyer answer. (laughs) Very good. Are you a politician, Steve? (laughs) No. Oh, God, no. (laughs) That sounds like what he was. (laughs) That's right. Exactly what you'd expect a politician to say. (laughs) Any implications from large companies that would sell. I mean, have there been any suits that anyone knows for big egregious break in intellectual protocols at all? Bob, maybe like EULA agreement problems? We've not had any big companies really, per se. It's usually small, bad actors overseas doing things that they shouldn't do, usually trying to make money. I think to kind of answer Tanner's question, your hypothetical question, Carm, GM, our biggest priority is safety. And like Steve said, we probably wouldn't sue an individual our biggest focus is going to be on that vehicle owner and their safety. And you guys were kind of talking about software mismatches. And I have an actual story from one of our engineers where development software was used internally, inappropriately, and a vehicle got built software-wise, configured with the wrong options on it. And one of our engineering leads drove it home, turned on the super cruise and lost control of the steering wheel. He was not able to steer the vehicle. So it's very important. And those are the kind of the safety things that we build into our service tool so that that can't happen. There's a lot of interconnectability with all of these systems now so that all the software numbers have to match. So if they would have used the service tool in this scenario, it would have told them that's a mismatch. Those software sets can't be put together. But because they were using an engineering tool that ignored that, it allowed that to happen. So it's critical that you use the appropriate tools. There's so much going on under the covers when you plug in something, Tanner, right? And stuff is happening between, you know, handoffs, if you will, and software. And we just think, oh, it's they're setting a couple of switches in there. But there's really some integrity and testing going on that I guess we want to thank the OEs for legitimizing the repair that we're doing so that we don't have any safety issues and or comebacks. Right. 
like Bob was saying about the engineering tool, a lot of the engineering tools look the other way, or sometimes it's a, what I will call like a board level tool. So it's a module repair tool. Somebody's made the software and you can load a software into it that you shouldn't be able to. So sometimes if you're the person doing the programming, me, I'm using OE tooling and that's all I'm using when I'm programming power for a shop. But if you don't know the person that's doing the programming or you don't know, maybe you're using a remote service, what they're using on the other end, you should typically get a, like if I do a GMTCM, for example, there's a warranty screen afterwards and I print out the warranty screen and that goes in the invoice. If you don't have a way to know what software the person that's doing the programming is using, and you're returning the vehicle to the customer, the customer could be possibly in danger if it's a safety critical system like super cruise and stuff like that, or the vehicle could not be repaired correctly. And the safety thing I want to bring up because in the collision space, remote programming is such a big thing. And that's where I'm getting at is like some of these collision centers are solely using remote programming. So if all of a sudden it's one car here and there, that's probably not that big of a deal. But if they're doing all of their cars through all of their centers all across the U.S. through remote programming, and they have no idea who's doing it this day to that day, they could have large safety problems at that point, potentially. And then also, that company is charging the insurance company for something that may have been illegitimate. So there's a lot of safety concerns there, I would say, and seems to me like also... Potential like legal problems, not from a patent infringement, but from a if something happens down the road that now you're legally liable because you're going to say, oh, I used, you're a large collision center, let's say, and you're going to say, well, I used this remote programming company, but it comes out it was just a small individual. Like Steve said, they're not going to go after the individual, they're going to go after the larger company. So if you're a multi shop organization and you're using this type of programming or you don't know what's going on, you're likely going to be the one liable because if you go back to the person that did your programming that's a singular individual and they did it incorrectly, they're going to go after the bigger company. I don't know about you, but we're 40 some minutes in here. I can't pick up my head. It's so heavy. (laughs) There's two things I want to cover. I want to talk about branding. If I have a BMW shop, can I use that logo anywhere? I want to cover that, but I also want to make a point about do-it-yourselfers. And it just seems to me that there's still advertising. Everybody thinks that, well, I'll just go on YouTube, figure out what it is, go get some kind of mini scan tool, and then figure out what I'm going to do. And if we're worried about vetting and making sure that we've got a legitimate individual who is flying the plane, because that's really what they're doing is they're, they're pulling the lever and, I don't know, it's being flown by wire somehow. <laughs> That's a great analogy, by the way. I like that. I always talk myself into these great ideas, but the DIY is going to almost disappear. I mean, can you even do brake jobs in the next 10 years? Not unless you have a tool that can retract calipers in the back. So I think DIY is going to go away. I think my personal opinion is some of the larger companies don't seem to understand where vehicle technology has gone. And they're still chasing that DIY customer, not realizing that, no, the DIYer can't do brakes on their car, possibly. Maybe they shouldn't be taking the front bumper off to change a headlight because when they move the front bumper that they may possibly hit a radar sensor that's under there or take something off and forget to plug it back in. And now all of a sudden they have a safety critical system that they've caused a problem with. So I think DIY is definitely going to continue to go to the wayside. I mean, there's certainly YouTube videos out there, but are you going to trust the YouTube videos? And the other part of this to kind of tie some of this together is then you look at a video and they're like, the person goes, oh, if you use this link to buy this product I use, I get credit. Well, the link is almost always through a 
large online seller that you have no idea of now the part that you're putting on, you have no idea of where it's coming from. You're hoping that the link that they provided you is good and it may or may not be. So I don't know. I don't see DIY as continuing to be a thing. I think maybe we got 10 more years. My personal opinion is in 2010, roughly, is when vehicles really started to change. So we still have those people who are driving 2005 Chevy pickups or whatever, and those vehicles weren't super overly complicated. But in 2010, really is kind of, I'm using that as a rough cutoff, is when everything drastically started changing, when ADOS systems started becoming more prevalent, when everything started to be needed to be programmed. I mean, on a GM truck back to 2001, if you change your master window switch, it has to be programmed. So it won't work unless it's programmed first. So I think in 10 years from now, I don't see it being as big of a thing. I was going to say, I think that's pretty unique because Tanner had mentioned it earlier. The products that seem to be being counterfeited are those smaller things, spark plugs, knock sensors, fuel injectors, some of the things DIYers typically try and attempt to do. And the YouTube videos, as you brought up, Carm, kind of are directing people to do that DIY stuff. So there's a conversion of those two things. But I think what's really driven the smaller components, uh, believe it or not, is the cost of, of shipping going up. They're starting to target the smaller stuff because it's easier to ship in the country. And they don't ship in large seatainers anymore because when they do, if it gets stopped by customs, they lose everything. And if they ship in small parcel, customs has so much they can't inspect. So a lot of the stuff leaks through and slips through. I don't even want to think that it could be like smuggling. I don't even want to think that. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. I would say, and for everybody that's on here too, I didn't bring this up in the beginning, and I guess I should have, is a lot of people attend SEMA. I mean, Carmen and I attend SEMA every year. Bob attends SEMA. The whole downstairs, we won't talk about what it's called, but the whole downstairs, Bob can tell you that there's people walking around looking for counterfeit goods in the entire downstairs of SEMA. So if you're going to yourself, man, I've never really seen this stuff, or I don't think I have been to SEMA, and you walked around the bottom floor, or I should say at SEMA, it's at Apex. Sorry. I should... Well, Apex bottom floor right now is Joe's Garage. It's different, and they put I think what you're referring to in another segment of the building. Yeah, it, it used to be downstairs. So I'm saying in years past, if you've gone, that's why if you had gone in years past and you had gone down there, you would have seen some of the stuff. And yeah, it's, it is, was moved last year. Joe's Garage is downstairs now. But if you go to that area where it's, I guess you'd call it international business for lack of better terms, and walk through at that point, you could see some of the stuff that it looks identical. It may have an AC Delco tag on it. It may have a Bosch tag on it. Who knows? But there's a lot of, I guess, Bob, would you call it, you're there looking for counterfeit parts. Yeah. And it, it gets very confusing, partially because of the way that businesses operated outside the U.S. They don't have the traditional distribution model. So some of those people that you see in the international area are just distributors of some of our second level distribution and things like that. So it gets very confusing if the stuff is legitimate, like Steve said, maybe gray market stuff not intended to be sold in the U.S. market, or is it somebody trying to pass it off as counterfeit? So you have to have conversations with a lot of people. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I can handle much more of this. My brain, <laughs> and I do love Swiss cheese, but that's kind of how it is. And I think you're right, Tanner. I think we have to come back and do a part two. And there's so much more to talk about. But before we end teased our great listeners about, you know, what if I have a BMW shop and I use that logo? I mean, Steve, can I do that? That touches on something called trademark law. Trademark law protects brand names, logos, slogans, things like that. So the challenge with it is that you are certainly allowed to 
like do things like compare your product to someone else's product. Or I had a case years ago where somebody was making an aftermarket automotive product and they wanted to be able to communicate, can I tell my potential customers that this product will work with their car? And of course, the answer is yes. Like you can nominally use other people's brand names and logos. Brand names, yes. Logos, maybe in that way. If you're a legitimate business and you have a legitimate partnership with a company, especially a larger company that you want to be friendly with, it's much, much better to reach out to them and get some sort of permission or at least ask what their guidelines are. Find out where their specific line is. Like, you know, we, we've talked about like DIYers, like in Metro Detroit, we have a ton of DIYers here, which should not surprise anybody. And so I can't imagine some of the automotive companies here being mad at some of these car clubs that get set up on Woodward every Friday and Saturday night in a parking lot and even like promoting like, hey, this is for people who own a specific vehicle of a specific time frame. Like they're not going to get sued for that. That'd be crazy. Like you can't sue your customers like we talked about earlier. You can, but you shouldn't. Right. And so I think like every industry, every company is going to have its own threshold for what it's willing to tolerate. And the best thing to do is just ask them, like, where's the line? Is this okay? Bob might actually have a better answer with your experience in branding. You may, or maybe you can't give up. <laughs> no, I, I think it lines up with kind of what you said. I mean, for us, it's always going to be a, a question of, is a customer going to be harmed or safety related yeah. type thing? Or is it going to give a, I don't really want to say a bad brand image to us, but is somebody going to presume that that is actually a, an extension of GM and, you know, right. we, we don't have any standards for what they do. And could that look like GM did something? I interviewed Alan Ollie Gelfand. It was 2016. I ended up becoming a good friend of mine. And he told the story in our first episode about how VW sued him because he said he was a VW specialist. And he said it was a pretty tough lawsuit to go through, and he lost. Way back, just let me tell everyone, it was episode 76. Now, we're in the 800s right now, so <laughs> a long time ago, but it was a great story. I think that lines up well with what Bob just said, that if you're holding yourself out as a specialist or in some sort of way that creates an association with you and the company, your risk skyrockets. There's like a Pontiac Firebird Club on Woodward meeting weekly, and they're putting that up on Facebook. I don't think anybody's going to assume that it's like sanctioned or authorized or that they're representing the Pontiac brand, which doesn't exist anymore. So like there's certainly like a big, like a wide area where you can, where you get some leeway, but yeah, the closer you get to associating yourself with a particular company you are not associated with, the higher your risk goes. So I could say it's Carms Automotive specializing in BMW, Mercedes, and Audi. I mean, if I was using their logos everywhere and representing that I had a strong relationship with the company, but if I just disclaimed in a paragraph, that's what I do, that shouldn't be a problem, should it, Steve? That's too much of a hypothetical for me to answer. <laughs> Whoa, another loyally thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be deposed on this. Um. <laughs> so I guess sort of change Carms like question or answer here from what I've seen, because I've had several shops get cease and desist letters. Typically the cease and desist letters come or cease and desist letters come from when a logo is specifically used on a website or on a banner on the front of the shop. So for example, they mm -hmm. said this is Tanner's auto repair and they had a GM logo under it. Or most of the ones I know were European car companies. They seem to be, I guess, more apt to send letters. But doing that, putting a logo on their website or on their business versus just saying, I specialize in whatever car. Yeah, like so trademark law is all about deceiving the public. The whole point of trademark law is to prevent 
people using brands inappropriately in a way that deceives the public. So if I put a big GM logo out on the front of my building, it kind of suggests I might be affiliated with GM. Like certainly you could work on their cars, but you can do that without being affiliated. So the more that you do that looks like you are like legitimately tied to them, the more likely you are to run into an issue. Like, you know, saying things like we handle or we specialize in European cars, you're not going to get in trouble for that. If you say specifically BMW, maybe BMW would get mad. I don't know. It just depends. Tanner, thank you so much for bringing this topic and and our guests. Tanner Brand from Auto Diag Clinic, Bob Stewart, Global Brand Protection Manager for General Motors, and Stephen Contos, patent attorney, who was a politician actually on the show. He specializes in automotive engineering and software for Herity and Herity, and I understand, sir, exactly. But this was great. We talked about counterfeit parts and software, and we talked about the gray market to be careful and watch out for. I think you may have changed some people's thinking and thoughts on uh, if there's a problem with this part. Was it really a legitimate part? And why should I use three in a row to find out that, whoops, I should maybe go somewhere else to buy the part. But a lot to think about, a lot of exposure that we have. And we're working on an episode about network security bringing in some people to say, even in the small shops, Tanner, they've got to figure out and legitimize the stuff that's getting up and out and over the network. So if some illegit comes in with some malware into a part and they try to fire it up, and is there the potential of the possibility that some of these super network specialists can even rat that out? Maybe. I don't know, but I have this huge curiosity to do an episode on that. So thank you for helping push my think in that regard. Honored to have you guys all here and And stand by. These guys will be back in the future. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you, everybody. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time, 